Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Hannah. (laughs) All right. So in this episode, we are going to talk about why we use calcium to stabilize the cardiac membrane in hyperkalemia. Not only are we going to cover the evidence for this practice, but we're also going to talk about the proposed mechanism of why this happens. So, Tony, my interest is piqued. Tell me, what made you look into this topic? So, well, first of all, um, I I think this is pretty relevant. Um, I don't know that you can get more than a month into your intern year, pretty much any kind of residency, and not give calcium for hyperkalemia at least once. Um, but you'll tell me that, Hannah. I, I suspect you've given a lot of calcium this year. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, all I know is that it stabilizes the cardiac <laughs> membrane. Like mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell and calcium gluconate stabilizes the cardiac membrane. Right. And you can't see this, but Hannah is giving air quotes for stabilizing <laughs> the cardiac membrane. And so like that was the other thing that made me want to look into this is that I didn't understand what was actually going on. And I too on rounds would be like, oh yeah, yeah. why don't you go stabilize that cardiac membrane? I'll be, I'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> um, and what was really fascinating when I reviewed this topic, and, and this has come up in other things that we've covered in the podcast is, that, you know, the evidence is there. It's not like there's no evidence, but it was far less, you know, deep compared to what I was expecting to find. So Tony, where uh, where do you want to start? Let's let maybe start with some history. Um, of so this, yeah, this one goes uh, way back into the 1800s, uh, more specifically 1883 uh, with Sidney Ringer. And you know, I think we all know um, Sidney Ringer's uh, eponymous uh, Ringer solution. Uh, but when he was kind of experimenting with all the different IV fluid formulations, he observed that if you give a solution with an increased potassium content, that led to a progressively weaker ventricular contraction. And this was kind of one of the first observations that hyperkalemia may lead to problems with the heart. So this is maybe something that we're going to put in air quotes again, but like, why is it, <laughs> why is it a problem for the heart to be hyperkalemic? <laughs> Yeah, and I think you're probably the, the, the appropriate person to ask that question because in order for us to understand the answer, we're going to have to go back and re-review action potentials a little bit. So Avi, you know, in episode 20, when we were talking about STEMIs, uh, you reviewed the action potential. And I think here we got to go back and re-review like how we generate one. So can, maybe can you can do that for us? Yeah, if you really, really need me to review action potentials, we can review <laughs> I, yeah, of all the things I really need you to review, this this is it. <laughs> all right, so so action potentials are dependent on a number of things. So you have to have a resting membrane potential, which in myocytes is about negative ninety millivolts, and a threshold potential, which is about negative seventy millivolts. And finally, you know the activation state of the membrane sodium channels that open during phase zero depolarization that initial phase, the more sodium channels that are open, the more rapid of, de- of a depolarization that you get. Exactly. So, you know, membrane potential, uh, sorry, resting membrane potential, threshold potential, and then how many sodium channels are open. And so really any alteration in one of these things might make it easier or harder to generate an action potential. And so if we go back to the resting membrane potential, it's important to remember that This results from an outward leak of potassium. So the leak is of of these positively charged ions, these potassium ions, from the inner membrane to the outer membrane, 
leaves the inner membrane negatively charged. And as Avi just reminded us, that negative charge is about negative 90 millivolts in the myocytes. All right. So if there's more potassium floating around outside, then there should be less of a gradient to drive the potassium flow. Is that right? That, that's exactly right, right? So again, just as Hannah said, if you put more potassium in the extracellular space, the flow of potassium from inside to outside is going to decrease. And that's going to make that resting membrane potential less negative. So as an example, instead of it being negative 90 millivolts, it might go to something like negative 80 millivolts. And remember that the threshold potential is negative 70 millivolts. So hyperkalemia is going to initially lead to a sort of narrowing of the difference between the resting and the threshold potential, right? So the, 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 the resting potential is going to get a little bit closer to that threshold potential. And this leads to like myocyte excitability. They're just like, they're, all, they're kind of always on edge, ready to reach that threshold because they're a little bit closer. So w- Nothing more exciting than an excited myocyte. <laughs> <laughs> what about an unstable excited myocyte <laughs> so is that yeah exactly is that what we're talking about here you know like quote unquote on un- instability of the membrane yeah i think when people talk about quote unquote stabilizing the cardiac membrane i think that this is what they're referring to right we have a membrane that is mm. a little bit more easy to depolarize because it's closer to threshold and so it is quote unquote unstable And so we got to do something to stabilize it. Okay, so calcium gluconate. That's that's what stabilizes the cardiac membrane. That's what I know. Exactly. What is calcium gluconate doing to stabilize the cardiac membrane? Right, and that's obviously the the big question for this episode. So there's at least two ways that calcium might stabilize the membrane. And I think the way to think about this and really think about any of the mechanisms is to, again, imagine the difference between the resting and threshold potentials, right? So we've said that this is normally about 20 millivolts. And in hyperkalemia, it narrows because the negative 90 goes to negative 80. So it's a little bit closer to threshold. And so maybe that difference is now 10 millivolts. Uh, And so when they're closer, it's easier to activate the action potential. This is our unstable or excitable membrane. So what we're looking for in a therapy like calcium is restoration of that larger difference. We want to go back to that 20 millivolts. And in theory, you could do this in one of two ways. You could either undo that change in resting potential, right? If so, if hyperkalemia moved it from negative 90 to negative 80, 80, maybe calcium just brings it back to negative 90. Boom, we're at 20 difference again. But the second possibility is that the threshold potential moves as well and, you know, goes less negative. And that is what restores the 20 millivolt difference. But either way, we think about restoring or stabilizing membrane. It's really restoring that difference of of somewhere around 20 millivolts. It may not be exactly that, but it's in that ballpark. Okay. So two ways to potentially get you back to that 20 millivolt gap that stabilizes the membrane. So which one is it? Yeah, so I, th- I, th- I think the answer is the second one. And so um, some of the evidence for this came out uh, way back in 1955. Uh, Silvio uh, Weidman and his group, they showed that more depolarization was required with calcium-rich solutions. Right? So the resting membrane potential was unchanged 
but the threshold potential had increased, had become less negative. And so his group concluded that the threshold potential was what it was accounting for, or a change, I should say, in the threshold potential was accounting for the stabilization effect of calcium. Calcium was somehow moving that threshold a little bit less negative, moving it away from that resting potential, restoring that difference of, again, somewhere around 20 millivolts. Okay, so is that it? Is that how calcium gluconate stabilizes cardiac membrane? Uh, So that is probably one way, uh, but there's a little bit more to it. And as I read more about this, I I, I think I came to the realization that this next thing that we're going to talk about is actually the more important mechanism. I I think what Mm. we're about to talk about next is actually um, the key. I thought that there was another part because we're only nine minutes into the (laughs) Yeah. Well, we haven't talked about the evidence, but that can be covered in about 30 seconds in all reality. Um, All right. So- We've been talking for the first, you know, eight, nine minutes about how hyperkalemia initially makes the resting potential less negative, and this leads to increased membrane excitability. But what's interesting is that a persistent change in that resting potential inactivates those sodium channels that Avi reminded us are required for phase two, right? So we need those sodium channels for that rapid depolarization. And when you have a slight depolarization at baseline, right? That resting membrane potential has gone a little bit closer to to uh, to zero. That leads to inactivation of some of these sodium channels and the, the membrane actually becomes less excitable. And we see this uh, by the quote unquote Vmax. That's the like the velocity of increase in phase two, like just how quick that moves up. And on the EKG, we see this by the QRS complex. So in hyperkalemia, when it's severe, remember that you see that widened QRS. And one of the reasons it's wide is that there's a slower increase in that phase zero because there's less of these sodium channels that are available. And so that you know, it just delayed. It's just, it takes more time to go up. And that's, we see the evidence of that on the EKG by the wide QRS complex. So that sounds like a little bit of a paradox, Tony, because initially you were saying that the membrane is more unstable, but now you're saying that sodium channels are becoming inactivated and things are slowing down. That sounds like a decrease in excitability in persistent hyperkalemia. Is that is that paradox fair to say that that's there? Or? I, th- I think that's exactly right. And you know, the reality is, and I alluded to this a moment ago, I really think it's the second thing this decrease in excitability that's more problematic in hyperkalemia. And, and this actually fits with the symptoms, right? Patients get weak. They have heart block, right? Less ability to conduct. Asystole is really the, the main arrhythmia, and you get some V-fib as well, but it's not necessarily VTAC. So the problem is more with a membrane that you can't activate with hyperkalemia, even to a greater extent than a membrane that is too excitable. And that's, that is the opposite of what I heard initially, but it's also kind of annoyingly a little bit of both. You know, the medicine is a little bit messy, and I think this is one of those situations. And that, that fits with what was sort of burned into my brain during critical care fellowship was if you see something that looks like ventricular tachycardia, but it's slow, you should think severe hyperkalemia. Yeah, that really bizarre wide QRS yes, complex. But you not know, it's fast, more than f- but it's not fast. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, you know, for the for the interns, if you ever see a QRS complex wider than 240 milliseconds, you, your diagnosis is hyperkalemia. Like that is 100% the case. There may be other things, but they have hyperkalemia. 
So, and you mentioned that VMAX is slower. Uh, why, why would that be? Yeah. So that, again, that VMAX is the, um, the, the rate of increase of that phase two. And what's amazing, and I had either forgotten this or never learned it, is that the resting membrane potential actually determines the number of sodium channels available. So at negative 90, like the normal resting membrane potential, the maximum number of channels are available. Maximum number of sodium channels are available. And as that resting membrane potential moves closer to zero or closer, you know, becomes less negative, fewer channels are open or available. And that's what leads to that slower depolarization. And as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, hyperkalemia is like the classic example of a situation uh, where the resting potential um, is closer to zero. And so less channels are available. The exact intricate details of why that's the case, that I, I, don't, I don't know. So if... Inactivation of sodium channels is a big part of the kind of terminal toxicities that you see with severe hyperkalemia. What is calcium doing there to kind of make that better? We wouldn't probably be bringing it up if calcium didn't also affect this second mechanism, and, and it does. So calcium actually increases the activity of sodium channels. Um, these sodium channels required for phase zero depolarization. And more specifically, calcium binds to these calcium-dependent calmodulin and protein kinase 2, and this leads to activation of the sodium channels that are required for phase zero. And I think going a little bit deeper than that is probably unnecessary. I think the key thing to know is that calcium kind of restores those sodium channels that would otherwise not be available for that wonderful, like, exciting, you know, VMAX. So what you're telling me is that calcium both stabilizes the cardiac membrane and destabilizes <laughs> the cardiac membrane in the perfect proportion. I that I know. It's a little bit like far-fetched to believe. Like so the the way I actually think about it is um and the way I'm maybe gonna talk about it on rounds to be a little bit cheeky is instead of saying we're gonna stabilize the cardiac membrane, we should say we're mobilizing the cardiac membrane. Uh but it, it's it's kind of as avi alluded to it's a little bit of both it's it's messy but like i feel like action potentials and cardiac myocytes are kind of messy so yeah it, it is what it is is it yeah we're like optimizing the fiber length of the you know cardiac action potential we're <laughs> yeah we're hitting euvolemia yeah the frank starling curve <sighs> exactly tony is it fair to say that it's restoring equilibrium like yeah i think that's that's actually you probably the the right way to say it like calcium is restoring as best it can um, in the equi equilibrium between the difference between resting and membrane, um, or sorry, resting and threshold, and, and it's restoring the sodium channels. It's, it's helping or doing its best to restore equilibrium. And we see that when we infuse it by the changes in the EKG, you know, kind of resolution of those abnormal EKG findings. It sort of shows us the equilibrium that we're restoring. I think that's, a, that's probably the better way to do it. Oh man. Okay, let's take a step back. Let's let's summarize what we just talked through because I think there was a lot there. So the first thing that hyperkalemia does is it makes the resting potential less negative. So for example, going from negative 90 to negative 70. And that's the exciting part that brings it closer to the threshold. It makes it more likely that the myocyte is going to depolarize and that makes it unstable or excitable. But then with persistent hyperkalemia, the membrane actually becomes less excitable because slowly there are fewer sodium channels that are active for phase zero. Calcium then helps with both of these things, 
it both brings us back to that sort of negative 20 gap in terms of fixing the overexcitability, but then in terms of fixing the essentially underexcitability or the fewer sodium channels of persistent hyperkalemia, it binds to these calcium-dependent calmodulin and PK2 to activate the sodium voltage gate channels. That's right. And and I, I, I don't know that papers I read actually state this. And so this statement is my interpretation of things and maybe inaccurate or incorrect. But I think that second thing is the more important thing. I think that restitution of the sodium channels that are inactivated, I think that's the more important mechanism here. But again, that's my interpretation of the data, not necessarily corroborated by what you know other people have said. And that's sort of how we use it, right? I mean, it's really typically used more when it's, you know, like you're worried that the person is going to have a cardiac arrest and like, right, they're developing arrhythmias and it's, you know, it's, you're trying to, to rescue them. Is there any evidence, like clinical evidence for the efficacy of calcium and hyperkalemia besides our observations? Yeah, it, there is. And, and the reality is the, the evidence is these observations, right? So there is no randomized control trial. So there, you know, there's early studies from like the early 1900s. Uh, for example, you know, 1939, uh, a group reported on these experiments where they looked at various mixtures of calcium and potassium and their effects on the heart. And when potassium chloride was given without calcium, the serum potassium at which death occurred was lower than in values where calcium was added. To the solution. And so they said, oh, calcium must somehow protect the heart against issues with potassium. And so this was like the beginning of kind of the air quotes and the hand waving. And, you know, the reality is over subsequent decades, there were a bunch of small studies, you know, we're talking double digits. None of them were randomized. They were all observational, but they all had, you know, EKGs showing improvement in the, the findings of hyperkalemia. And I think it was enough for people to feel like, you know, this therapy works. And so they decided to go with it. It's, you know, it's funny. This really does remind me a lot of magnesium and its treatment in Torsade de Pointe, and which we have talked about on an earlier episode of, of the podcast, that there's not a lot of clinical data saying that it's efficacious, but we all know that it works. Like we've pushed the drug and the arrhythmia stops. Like, you know, it, it just kind of reminds me of that too. Yeah. Also. Is this why there's calcium in LR? Like, was Sydney Ringer, like, way back in the day, like, yeah. trying to tell us something? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Bringing um, him back to Sydney Ringer. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what, what prompted, you know, good old Sydney to, to decide to add calcium. You know, this is I also, you know, like magnesium for torsade and situation where I'm okay with not having a randomized trial. Like, I, I'm not going to, you know, say that we, I'm not going to, you know, stop my feet and say I demand it. Because it clinical experience over these decades has shown that it does work. Wild. Okay. Anything else from the topic that you wanted to bring up or anything else that came up while you were reading? Yeah. So the, the only other thing I want to mention is another treatment that was kind of vying for decades with calcium for kind of like the number one slot as the treatment. And that is uh, hypertonic saline. So, you know, since at least 1918, Hypertonic saline has been shown to be effective at combating all these cardiotoxic effects of hyperkalemia. But I had never heard of this, and I've certainly not used hypertonic saline for this purpose. I'm not sure, Hannah, have you used it in like codes? Oh, they might be hyperkalemic. Give them a slug of hypertonic saline. Definitely not. No, yeah. What about you, Avi, in the ICU? Hyponatremic seizures, that's it. 
Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting is, so just as with calcium, hypertonic saline can increase the velocity of phase zero depolarization. You know, it, it improves that Vmax. And I think the simplest way to think about it is that if you dump a whole ton of sodium into the extracellular space, um, it's going to increase the velocity of sodium flow across uh, those sodium channels. And that may not be the exact mechanism, but I think it's a, it's a reasonable way uh, to look at it. Okay, so any data for that, for, for HDS? Yeah, re- the, remarkably, um, the data is probably as good as the data for calcium. So, you know, you'll find these studies where just as with calcium, someone will give a slug of hypertonic saline and you'll see improvements in the ECG, like narrowing in the QRS. And as I reviewed this literature, I was kind of surprised how easily calcium became the standard of care, right? So before the 1960s, Saline and calcium, they were kind of, each year, there'd be like a new study on each of them, five, 10 patients, um, and they were both mentioned in reviews. And then there were two reviews in the 1960s, one in The Lancet and one in New England Journal, and they both endorsed calcium. And it's not like a definitive paper had been published that decade. I, I just think it would have kind of reflected the author's opinions at the time, and it may have reflected what had emerged as the standard of care. Um, but I, I don't know that calcium clearly is the winner when you look at the data. I, I, don't, I don't think it's like that at all. I do wonder if the fact that calcium affects both of the mechanisms that we've been talking mm-hmm. about on this episode might be why it's kind of won the day. Um, but one thing to think about it, uh, on this topic is you know, sodium bicarbonate, right? So if you decide to give that for hyperkalemia, it may in fact be the sodium in the sodium bicarbonate that's more important than the bicarbonate. And that is obviously not at all, I think, the way I had operated as an intern. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of wondering that when you asked about hypertonic saline, because we get bicarbon codes all the time. And there's, there's, yeah. there's a lot more sodium in sodium bicarb than there is in like a 3% hypertonic saline oh, yeah. bolus. You know, there's, there's a lot, a lot of sodium. Exactly. And so I, I've never given sodium bicarbonate and like looked to see if the you know, QRS complex narrows, but um, these studies demonstrate that it can. Hmm. Okay. Tony, we have covered so much. Can you give us some take-home points? Absolutely. So, uh, number one, initially hyperkalemia will lead to an increase in the resting membrane potential, meaning it moves it closer to zero. And that makes those myocytes more excitable. That increase in resting membrane potential actually leads to inactivation of sodium channels, and that leads to a less excitable membrane. So the early hyperkalemia is a more excitable membrane, but as it persists, that membrane becomes less excitable. And as I've said a few times, I think it's that latter thing that's the more important. Fortunately for us, calcium, um, whether it's calcium gluconate or, or other forms of calcium, they kind of address both of these issues. We get kind of like a double trouble or two hits. And, you know, the final thing is, um, you know, hypertonic saline may similarly have beneficial effects, though uh, I'll be clear, I'm not necessarily advocating its use, but there are even still reviews to this day that, that include hypertonic saline as a, as a therapy for treating the, the EKG findings of, um, uh, of hyperkalemia. And like you said, Tony, like you said, when we give a sodium bicarb bolus... Yeah. We might just be giving a so we might be giving a sodium load as well as <laughs> that may That's be why right. it, right. it, it's helping. Um, That's right. Thanks so much, Tony. I really like the way that you really laid out this really pretty complex issue in a very 
I think, understandable and organized way. So thank you. So that wraps up another episode of the Curious Clinicians. Thanks as always for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We're excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.